Externos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. 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 I uh, was at a conference earlier um, in which people were trying to sell the world on the concept of flying cars. Ah. Uh. In our cities, it's a big thing that nobody's talking about right now and that someday soon everybody's going to be freaking out about why they weren't talking about it sooner. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the minute you start having sky traffic in L.A., Mm -hmm. so it's like 4 p.m. and like it's double-decker traffic on the 405 and just like 100, 200 yards above the 405. Mm-hmm. Not to call it something else, the 405A, 405-Air. Yeah. People are going to people will be talking about that for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I and mean, unfortunately, gravity is still, as of uh, this recording, a thing. So, yeah. Oh, you know. Hey, you don't know by the time no. this gets edited if gravity will still be a thing. No, it's true. I don't know. Stuff. I don't know what new technologies might come along nope. that could change the game for us. Nope. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know what laws of physics that underpin, Stephen, mm. the nature of reality. I don't, I don't know you what don't those know. may be repealed by the incoming uh, House of Representatives. Nope. Yeah, don't we don't know, know any of that stuff. We don't know bupkis about them. And the... Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because Brandon, that's precisely what we're going to be talking about on the show today. Not the uh, House of Re- not the House of Representatives, oh, not not yeah. them. Thank God. Which thing then? Oh, we're going to be talking about innovations that are just constantly right around the corner yeah. that elevate and propel our species into new and previously unknown futures, or into new and previously unknown walls. You know, like a like a fly, like a drunk driver with a flying car. Yeah, things are exciting today. What form will they take? Who can say? Yeah, no, we are going to be talking about innovations and what they mean for the species, human species. Well, some of these other species, their fates too will be considered and redecided based on some of these innovations we're going to be talking about today. One thing about innovation is that by its very nature you don't always see it coming. So we don't know what the future looks like 300 years from now because each new reality is being created by the last innovation. So like, there's going to be all these twists and turns. Yeah, paradigm shift. There we go. A great story actually came out earlier this week that covered an innovation that occurred some 780,000 years ago. You don't say. Yeah. It reported by a couple of different outlets. CNN headline, clues at ancient lake site reveal earliest known cooked meal. Um, I'm listening. Okay. So first of all, what do you think it was? 780,000 years ago. If I recall correctly, people were bonkers for their omega-3s. So mm. I'm going to go I'm gonna go something, something pescatarian. Well, you nailed it. It was a carp. It was a carp, it was kind of like a cursor to the modern carp. Uh, a few scientists out of Tel Aviv University's Steinhardt Museum of Natural History released a paper that's based on 16 years of research. A detailed study of fish teeth 
that were found right on the edge of an ancient lake called Hula. It was most likely our earliest ancestors, Homer Erectus, were cooking up some carp, man. Monkers. Yeah. yeah. I like the, um, on the CNN insight, they have an illustration and it depicts a pastoral scene mm-hmm. and the foreground is a woman who I guess you could say looks like what you think of as a cave woman. She's got sort of a skin. Flintstones energy. Very strong Flintstones energy. Yeah. Cut, cut very short. I mean, there's a lot it of is. leg. Yep. She's wrapping up a fish in leaves. There's mm-hmm. a little f- fire there and then there's yep. some grass. And then behind her, a couple dudes, also strong Flintstone energy with some fish. On a stick. On a pole. Yeah. Fish on a pole. Going from point to point. Then there's a river and then behind that, couple of mammoths that's how you know that we're in a time long ago mm-hmm. it, it's like if a character shows up in a movie in a, like a dark trench coat and steps on a baby bird you know that that guy's <laughs> up to no freaking good they did why that. is he stepping on a baby bird because you, oh, you he's because mean. without words and in two seconds all you got to know about this scene is this guy's up to no good that's the premise of save the cat you know save the cat no no Save the Cat is a very famous screenwriting guide in which it says, you know, within the first, I don't know, 13 pages, you have to have a character save the cat, right? Mm. Save the, And that will tell you that he's the good guy, she's the good guy. Got it. Or, you know, if you kill the cat, that tells you, oh, we're following the villain. I knew it. Yours was trench coat baby bird, My- <laughs> not as popular as the title. Not as popular. Back to this study, it's particularly remarkable because prior to this work, the first, quote, definitive evidence of cooking was thought to be by the hands of Neanderthals in early Homo sapiens 170,000 years ago. So this research pushes that date back some 600,000 years. So big sea change in our understanding of our own evolution and our relationship to the natural world and how we fed ourselves. Particularly cool is how they figured this all out. They found all these bones near a site that they knew there was a fire. So there were basically no fish bones, but they found these teeth, right? And that's because bones will disintegrate at around 930 degrees Fahrenheit, but the teeth remain. They burn essentially at a different rate. The teeth remain is my Nine Inch Nails cover band. Continue. (laughs) That's very good. So through that process they were able to determine that, yes, these fish, in fact, were cooked. They don't know exactly how they were cooked, which brings into question that Flintstone's picture from the CNN article because she is wrapping a, a, a carp-like fish into this, you know, big leaf. They don't know anything about the preparation. Could have been poached, could have been grilled, could have been... There's more than one way to cook a carp, is what I'm trying to tell you. I hear you. Now, why this is interesting beyond just that it spends a lot of time talking about fish teeth and cooking methods for fish teeth 780,000 years ago is that it contributes to the conversation of the way in which cooking food helped the development of our giant human brains. Before Mm -hmm. this, we were eating raw food, and that had a bunch of risks, obviously, like bacteria and all the horrible things that can be in there that will kill you when you eat raw food. Cooking... Does a couple of things, right? One, it kills the bacteria and the harmful things in there. And two, it actually softens up the meat so that it's easier for us to chew 
which is the first stage of digestion, Stephen, and then to digest and so on and so forth. And that's why today, Stephen, we have these third molars, these wisdom teeth that aren't really used anymore because back in the day we needed them to chew stuff. And also why I think we have an appendix in our intestines, oh. which we also don't really need anymore. But yeah, figuring out how to cook stuff suddenly made things a lot easier. It also meant we had access now to tons and tons and tons more calories, mm-hmm. which of course contributes to overall health. But also our big fat brains got bigger and fatter. You know, you can tuck into the headline, hey, we figured out how to cook fish a longer time ago. But really, this is a much bigger point about just the the scope of human evolution and when these things took off and maybe how long ago we started becoming modern humans. Yeah, there's two different sort of time-related elements to this story. For one, if you're not chewing and tearing apart raw meat, right, aren't you spending less time just chewing, right? So those are fewer hours in the day. And then you're reframing the time you spend bonding with your family in in developing these social bonds, because suddenly, you know, fire has always been a a big part of like the human social structure back then. But now you're using fire in this different way. And so I'm sure that had to have something to do with stronger family bonds as well, like how you connect over food. Sure. Otherwise, you're just sitting there chewing and staring across chewing, at somebody else who's chewing. And chewing. And then you hold up your single index <laughs> finger, like, just give me a chewing, and then, chewing. Just, I just, the, just, I just need, I need five more minutes. Instead, you can get into fights about why your sister's such a pain in the ass. Um, there have been studies of primates, and they actually measured how much time they spend chewing. And the answer, Stephen, is a lot. Just spend a lot of their time chewing, just right? chewing stuff up. Those hours add up. Stephen, would you say that <laughs> fire was really the first appliance? I mean, it's a labor-saving device. Mm. The first appliance would have had to be a tool that you used to make the fire. Like, yeah. even if it was just, like, capturing pre-existing fire from a lightning strike, and you're, like, taking a branch, and then you, like, figure out that you could take that and put it to another stick of branches, the branch there would be the first appliance. Yeah. I don't want to get too far afield, but when you look at a toaster, do you think that's a tool? Or is an appliance a different kind of thing? Like, I don't think of a washing machine as a tool. Mm. I think of it as an appliance. Like, it performs a task. Yeah. There's some there's some differentiation between the stick and the fire in yeah. terms of the, the role it serves. The fire really is, like, the ultimate appliance. Yeah. Remember those, like, fully connected automated houses from the 50s? House of the future. It's the house of the future in the past. Right. Yeah. All in one. And you too bring up a great point because as soon as we started figuring out how to cook these fish, it really was a technological revolution. I mean, a huge innovation for over a half a million years ago. That fish walked so we could run. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll stand by the metaphor. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) It is evolution-related, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, (laughs) It's interesting that this story came out when it did. You know, every now and again, you have a wonderful little synthesis of stories. This story came out within a few days of the big news that the human race had reached the whopping number of 8 billion people on the planet. So 780,000 years ago, you got somebody going, hey, we can cook this fish. Here we are. Dealing with a problem on the other side of things. You bet we are. Uh, And a big problem 
of overpopulation is how are we going to feed all these people? And if all these people are eating meat, what does it mean to raise the that livestock and poultry, etc.? And what does that mean for the environment? Right. Land use, CO2 emissions, the uh, ethics this, of animals. The spread of disease. Spread of disease. Yeah. Which brings us to our next technological innovation that we'll be discussing today. And it is the development of no-kill meat. Have you heard about this? Mm-hmm. Do you know how it works? Do I know how it works? No-kill meat is, that's where you raise, say, a pig. Mm-hmm to not mind being eaten while it's alive. <laughs> and it just sort of continues to regenerate. Uh, yeah, no, it's different than like beyond meat in sort of these meat substitutes. This is actually where scientists are extracting uh, cells from an a animal via a biopsy. And you place those cells in a growth medium and then you you feed them various nutrients that are needed for animal cell growth. And then those cells, with the help of a great deal of scientific innovation, grow into, in, in, in the case of a company called Upside Foods flagship product, grow into chicken. Not chicken, like fake beyond meat chicken, like chicken. This is chicken with all of its vowels intact. The whole thing. And it was in the news also, notably at the same time as the 8 billion human story and the first fish story, all kind of within a few days of, of one another because Upside Foods has recently received the FDA green light that their facility, in, et cetera, is safe and that they are ready more or less to kind of start cranking this stuff out. What I like about the story is the way that it's produced, the story in NPR goes on a visit to the facility in Emeryville, California, which will soon be cranking up 50,000 pounds of cultivated meat a year. They have these big stainless steel tanks that if you've ever been to a brewery, you might recognize as being similar to that. And in these tanks, they are actually brewing this meat. I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. Brewing meat in tanks. And, and you can imagine turning a faucet and it comes out. Totally. And they look like they really do look like those big tanks in the breweries that, you know, that smell bad. Yeah. Yeah, these just smell like chicken beer. <clears throat> yeah, obviously, a lot of high-minded goals and promises around no-kill meat. Proponents of this substance and this technology say that it will, of course, reduce the amount of methane that's put into the environment. It would obviously cut down on the amount of grazing area needed for livestock. It will certainly cut down on potential, you know, harmful things that are passed on through livestock to humans. Of course, we all remember the, the pandemic and many pandemics and other global health crises have to do with humans' proximity to livestock and animals and diseases jumping from species to species. So that would help that out. And of course, the ethical quandary that is related to eating meat, that kind of goes away. Couple potential problems. Um, since the facilities themselves will be run on electricity, that means that if this does happen at scale, there is a certain amount of CO2 emission concern that would have to be looked at. Also, it's not clear that there could be some other potential Sides. So, so sure, you're not going to have salmonella pass over via, you know, tainted meat or, or things like that. And you're not going to have the same danger of 
viruses jumping from animals to humans. But this is still like very much uncharted territory. So some folks do see some risks with this process that we just don't quite know about, which is always the byproduct of a game-changing innovation because it's so new that it could present very new problems that we don't see coming. Yeah, and then the economic side, right? There's a massive industry, which is sort of a monoculture for agriculture. Uh, you know, the Tyson chicken plants and the the Monsantos and those that do farming in a traditional way, that do ranching in a traditional way. If all that stuff goes away in the next, whatever, 15, 20, 25 years, what kind of upheaval will that have in the economy? Is it going to be similar to coal mining? Or is it ah. going to be, you know, where there's these giant regions of the country that are suddenly finding problems with employment? Oh. And then downstream effects like poverty and drug addiction and all that stuff. Is that going to happen because all of a sudden now we're able to grow things more efficiently in a lab? Should we be thinking about that stuff now? Yeah. On the other hand, you have an opportunity potentially for employment, for people to work in these food production facilities. That could be uh, that could be sort of a cool positive thing. Also, weirder stuff, right? Like, well, if you can grow a chicken and you can grow a beef... Can you combine those in some way and create new protein Chicky flavors? beef. Chicky, Chicky beef. beef. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's no, wild. It is wild stuff. If the promise of what this can offer the species is correct, and it's like we could take a big old chunk out of the existential threat for humanity as we know it, it raises all sorts of weird ethical questions, you know? There's a lot of ifs there, but I think with lab-grown food, you certainly see the potential more clearly. You see where you would take this, and you see mm -hmm. how the benefits would accrue, and, and specifically the things they would address. Well, we specifically have a problem with starvation. and Oh my gosh, we didn't even talk about food insecurity. If 100 years from now, 50 years from now, whatever, the cost of this get to a certain place where people can have like a dollar vial and then grow the meat for the week in their kitchen then you could take them to places where starvation is a super big issue but perhaps there could be other things that we haven't even thought of yet yeah well quote npr because this is a new industry there are potential unknowns some scientists say it's possible that unforeseen biological mechanisms could occur as the meat grows such as cells multiplying in unpredictable ways. There's a continued need for research as the industry heads toward commercialization. So are you reading what I'm reading? Yeah, monsters. Monsters. <laughs> I mean, when in doubt, roll the dice, baby. Roll the dice. Yeah, it's a rare thing when you have presented for you this then and now experience of, hey, here's what we were doing 780,000 years ago. Hey, here's what we're doing tomorrow. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, we've just been sort of cranking along, cranking along, cranking along, basically evolving our relationship with, you know, protein and where we get <laughs> it and what we do and how it influences all of these other things. It used to be it was fire and now it's meat vats. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's all kind of iterations on a, on a similar theme. People got to eat. And, you know, it's how our species is constantly looking at the 
core processes that keep us alive and thinking about like how they could be innovated or made better, right? And cooking that fish, that also eventually had some pretty dire consequences. Like the, the there's one fish, oh wow, this is great. My small community learned how to do this fish cooking thing and I'm gonna show my other communities as we travel, etc. And now like all the fish in the ocean are gone. Right. Yeah, we, we hit carrying capacity for what nature can provide pretty quickly. And in the last, whatever, 100 years or something, we're trying to figure out solutions, right? We're trying mm. to use technology, which got us into this mess, now to get us out, to pivot yeah. into how do we get the thing we want using fewer resources, being kind of less of a pain in the ass to the earth and, and, and hopefully solving. And that's a really revolutionary thing is can we have a future where – you know, the idea of getting a steak is a luxury. You know, like, so you get it once uh, a year, every five mm -hmm. years, because there's still cattle Oh, and those there, rep but... Yeah, those restaurants are going to be so pretentious. Yeah, oh my God, that'd be horrible. On the other hand, and I think this is something we should really think about, in addition to mixing the flavors, you can also have different shapes. Like, it doesn't need to be a chicken breast shaped chicken breast. The story doesn't go Whoa. into this, Stephen, but, you know, you could have a chicken in the shape of a dog bone. Hey, now. You could have a chicken in the shape of a hat. And you could be like, it's my birthday. I'm going to have my chicken hat. I'm going to eat the chicken hat. Yeah. And that could be, you know, in 30 years, maybe that is just the new American birthday party tradition. Everyone gets their birthday chicken hat. They have to wear it for the duration of the party. And then yeah. kind of like with a wedding cake, everybody gets a slice of it chicken It gets a hat. little slice. And then you take the hat and you put it in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And then you feed on your chicken hat bit by bit for the rest of your life. Or in 10 years, you come back and revisit it. On the 10-year anniversary of your chicken hat day. Chicken hat day. I mean, again, the future, who knows? Who knows? At what point does 3D printing technology intersect with lab growing technology? Right now. Yeah, because we're already seeing scientists growing organs. You know, they have mm -hmm. these little scaffolds that they grow the cells around so that you get, you know, a kidney or something like that. Yeah. Early days, early days. But why not grow edible meats in Ooh. fun and exciting shape? Stephen, what shape of chicken would you want to have brewed? Electric guitar. Oh, that's a good answer. Yeah. Yep. But then all the little strings are is chicken too. It's all chicken all the way down. It's all chicken all the way down. Yeah. And yeah. The little knobs are chicken. You got a little mm -hmm. chicken cord. Yeah. It's all chicken, yeah. baby. Yeah, the chicken Stratocaster. I would do uh, a 1980s Lamborghini. That would really take me back to my childhood. Hell all yeah. rendered in chicken. And, you know, somehow the doors would be hinged so that you still get the cool Lambo doors. Those are dope. Straight up and down. Yep. You can eat the whole thing. Dude. I love that. That's how we've gotten to this point, Stephen. Yep. We cooked the first fish. Yep. Now here we are with meat vats. Chicken cars. I've learned something today. This has been Journos. This has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I'm Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time.